You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Melissa Zalouf, and you're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing games. Joining me on today's episode are Spike Laurie, Venture Director at Hero Capital, and Mario Liu, who's VP at Barclays and Lead Analyst for Video Game Stocks. We are going to be talking about the gaming industry, unsurprisingly, um, talking a little bit about game tech because this is our, our game tech dedicated mini series and the game investment landscape in general. Um, so thank you both uh, for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having us. Likewise, so- thanks for Spike, maybe let's start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in the, the gaming industry. How did you end up at Hero Capital and what do you focus on there? Sure. Um, well, I've been in the games industry now for roughly 10 years. Um, I started at Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment, uh, marketing traditional kind of games, Mortal Kombat, Batman Arkham Knight, Shadow of Mordor. Um, my journey with those games brought me sort of esports I've, I've been playing competitive video games since i was very young um but really allowed me to sort of test out the business of competitive games or esports i joined esl turtle entertainment um a few years back now and uh, helped build their uk business helped build their latin american business and most recently was in los angeles um helping uh, manage their sort of global revenue pipeline for game publishers it was sort of through that that um, and the experience in esports. Uh, Ian Livingston last year was creating a new venture capital fund headquartered in London, focused on game studios, esports, and digital sports. And so I took the opportunity to join the team as we sort of set up the fund, and it's been a pretty great journey so far. And and how does it feel to sort of be on the investment side of things? It's great. It's it's really good, actually. Um, we get to see a lot of great businesses. I think we we t- t- totaled up that we've seen almost fifteen hundred businesses this year. So wow. there's this great landscape in games, especially of creativity and you know entrepreneurship, which is really refreshing. Uh, mm. And so to be able to look at and help those businesses on that journey and to provide experience you know the limited experience i have but the the wealth of experience that someone like ian has um to be able to provide that expertise and and that and, and open our network to them and to help them grow and flourish is it's it's we're very very lucky to be able to do that mm. and have you found that there's been a like a spike <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I did not plan that. It really only as it was coming out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> have you found that there's been a, a spike in um, sort of pitches following COVID? And I mean, we saw a big, a big increase in in time spent in games, and it, it wasn't just us that saw that. Did you see kind of a corresponding um, rise in the number of people trying to build game businesses? You know, it's actually been quite difficult. I think it's for for game studios because. Um, you know, since March now, the investment landscape has changed slightly. Um, mm. You know, the games industry was, especially in the UK, is built on angel and the seed funding because, you know, we have this incredible um, wealth of uh, businesses. We over-index in talent and, and the game studios in, in the UK and in Europe. And so we've got these 
people that have done extremely well from the games industry paying it back and doing a lot of angel and seed funding for studios. But I think with coronavirus, what happened there is, you know, everybody saw the stocks go down, this idea of this recession coming and and Mm. that we were in recession. I think a lot of those investors sort of just took stock a little bit and would think, wow, okay, hang on a second. This is, this is, this is real. And institutional investors sort of just took a little bit of a, let's see how things play out. I think now though, everyone's seen how fantastically well games are doing both in the public markets, the private markets. I know that we're going to get on talk to some of that cool stuff, but I think mm. now you're seeing a lot of institutional investors getting back in and saying, right, we've got to be in games. Things that we thought were foolproof six months ago, like property, now looks really uncertain and what does look certain is this idea of games the metaverse this sort of digitization avatarization of society and Mm -hmm. so now i think that that has everything's picked back up and a lot of people i think in the industry and rightly so have thought wow actually covid has shown the strength of digital the strength of this connected kind of metaverse society that we're moving towards and therefore, that idea that I had for X, Y, or Z, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to find mm. find an investor. Right. Uh, and and Mario, um, super interesting job. How and how did you how did you end up at it, becoming a, a lead gaming analyst at, at Barclays? Um, and what does your day to day look like? Yeah, I think uh, it's pretty funny. Me and you know Spike have pretty auspicious names being in the video game industry. So um, yeah, for me personally, I always grew up playing video games um, with my cousins and you know, having gone to school and studied finance, I naturally gravitated towards covering the space that interested me, me most. So I started off my career in consulting um, and then I jumped to the investment side before landing at Barclays within its equity research department. Um, so at Barclays, I've been there for a little over five years now, and I cover a number of video game stocks, uh, such as Activision, EA, Take-Two, Zynga, and Unity. Um, mm-hmm. So what that means is I research the companies and how well they perform um, and expect to perform operationally um, compared to where the stock is trading at today. So using those two barometers, I determine whether to give a buy, neutral, or sell rating to, to each stock. So. Mm-hmm. Long story short, my day-to-day includes a lot of calls with investors, um, people people like Spike, um, the companies themselves that I cover, either public or private, and a lot of Excel modeling to kind of come up with all the analysis. And have you, I mean, we are going to touch on this, but have you found that, are you, have you noticed a shift in the way the kind of financial community looks at the video game industry um, over the time you've been at Barclays? Definitely. I would say over the last five years, um, there's, there's, been a, there's been a transition from you know, media invest, more traditional media investors being interested in investing in video game stocks. That's, that happened you know, two to three years ago. And then more recently, a lot of software, um, you know, software investors have actually been interested in video game stocks, especially as these companies have you know, come up with more subscription models. Mm-hmm. Um, so more repeat recurring revenue streams. Um, so you see a lot of other investors outside of, you know, traditional internet, traditional, uh, you know, video games that are interested in the space. And so my uptick of calls this year, um, especially with the new console cycle coming, that that has definitely driven, um, you know, the volume up as well. But certainly all this shift from traditional media 
and software has, you know, increased the interest in video games. Mm-hmm. And both of you actually have a um, quite a, a wide perspective on the entertainment industry. Spike, you, you came from Warner Brothers um, and, and Mario, you're analyzing the space. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to what your take is on gaming inside entertainment or inside that context and what advantages you think gaming has over other uh, entertainment mediums because from a revenue perspective and and I think this this is it's an old stat not I mean it's sort of been around for let's say the last couple of years it keeps getting bigger Um, but this 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 idea that gaming is worth significantly more than the music and film industries is I think quite shocking to people um, and yet the, the numbers really sort of stack up here. Why do you think it is that gaming um, is does so much better than other forms of what feel to be more mainstream entertainment? Oh, I have to tell you who takes it first. Um, Spike. <laughs> uh, sure, happy. To, well, well, first of all, it's interactive. And, you know, I appreciate a lot of people are surprised at the size of the games industry. I think there are actually a lot of people who aren't very surprised, Um, you know, having grown up playing games my whole life, you know, the number of hours that I have played in video games completely, you know, transcends the number of hours that I've spent watching um, sort of static content. There's this great old saying that the medium is the message. Mm -hmm. And what I think, you know, games have, have, you know, have allowed a new, message to be told because the medium is so different and so malleable and so interactive and actually some of my most prolific experiences and some of my most memorable experiences of of, of storytelling and content comes from video games you know i i think of you know avengers i'm a big avengers fan i'm sorry to say uh but i you know the <laughs> avengers end game and all the 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 marvel content um you know i i I, I really love that, but I, I hold it at the same level of storytelling or the same level of um, passion as I do for something like Final Fantasy VII uh, or Deus Ex or System Shock or Ultima Online, you know. And I think that's what's um, that's what's really cool about video games. It allows you to tell a very deep, very immersive story and put you at the center of it and have you interact with the characters. And, and that is, I think, what's what's so unique and so compelling at a human level versus sort of cinema. Mario? Yeah, so in addition to video games, some companies I cover include uh, Amazon, Netflix. So, you know, a lot of similarities um, in both of these verticals, um, you know, including the shift to higher margin digital businesses, and also both of these verticals going more direct to consumer. So they're both big positive trends. I, I would say for gaming in particular, it does have its un- unique advantage that Spike talked about that, you know, by nature is interactive um, compared to the others, which are more linear. So on the financial side of the business, video games have benefited immensely from in-game revenue. So this started out from, you know, expansion packs to add-ons um, which are add-ons to the first unit launch sales, but that has evolved over time to to include loot boxes, virtual currency, to now battle pass, all of, all of which provide unlimited spending potential. So in other words, a, a player that is playing FIFA 21 can spend $10,000 on Ultimate Team versus linear entertainment where you rent a movie or buy an album, which are one-time purchases. So to me, the unlimited upside provided 
you know, by video games is a significant advantage over these other entertainment mediums. Yeah, I think um, that's definitely something I I had in mind when when asking the question because it doesn't it doesn't really make a difference to Netflix. No, it doesn't make a difference to the consumer if uh, Netflix is offering you a hundred, a thousand, or a hundred thousand shows and and TV um, or sh- movies and TV shows. You're still paying whatever it is that you're paying uh, a month. Whereas in a game, theoretically, I mean, it's not obviously not endless. Um, but it's very difficult to sort of put a limit on how much uh, revenue you can potentially generate from a user. Um, and Mario, an- another question for you. Um, we d- There's been a trend of seeing um, non, well, it's not even non-traditional gaming companies. It's, it's the traditional sort of tech behemoths um, like the fan companies getting involved in the, in the gaming industry, whether that's through sort of cloud stuff or, or, or creating their own games or their own game platforms. Um, what springs to mind is, is Amazon's recent attempt um, to sort of become a player and, and flopping with, with Crucible. Um, Google also struggled with Stadia. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Um, and, and what do you think is um, critical for sort of success um, in the game industry? And I'm putting a lot of questions on top here. <laughs> but do you think yeah. it's actually paradoxically harder for a, for a big company that isn't gaming in essence um, to succeed in the industry? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't think it's harder for a larger company to, you know, excel in gaming. I think, you know, as the saying goes, content is king. And, you know, currently neither Amazon or Google um, have quality gaming content on their platform currently. So I think Amazon arguably, you know, has the best gaming content out of the large tech companies since they own Twitch. So they thereby own game streaming content. So I'm pretty excited to see how they eventually tie in their cloud gaming service called Luna with Twitch. I think over the past few months, you've seen acceleration of gaming as a channel for social connection. So you've seen games like Among Us or Fall Guys that are kind of more mm-hmm. casual, more simpler games kind of jump to the top of the charts. So I think having the ability to connect a social channel like Twitch with its own gaming platform like Luna will be very interesting. Um, so I think where these large companies went wrong, um, especially for Stadia, um, is that the marketing aspect was, you know, it didn't really tie with, you know, consumer demand. So they came out with a pro edition at $10 a month um, with just access to its cloud platform. Um, So basically over 30 months of using that platform, it would cost more than buying a console itself, which, you know, Mm -hmm. economically doesn't really make much sense. Um, So I think for Luna, for Amazon's Luna, they said it's going to be uh, $6 a month, which is kind of like that Netflix model, which also includes a number of catalog titles. Um, so I think both of them kind of missed you know, the boat in terms of an attractive business model for consumers. Um, I think Google definitely could have marketed Stadia better, especially um, because they have this free tier that no one really knows about. Um, so it's basically there's cloud gaming at 1080p for free. Um, which I currently use. Um, so you basically just buy games a la carte and you can play for free um, on, on Stadia at 1080p. So it's similar to having any other console, but they just didn't really market it and not many people know about it. Um, so I personally tried both Stadia and xCloud. I think that technology is great. It just it needs the right business model, um, but then also the right marketing for, for it to work. 
Mm-hmm. And have we sort of, uh, when I say we, I mean both me as Iron Source asking the question, um, uh, and also sort of uh, general industry knowledge, missed any sort of big um, plays um, from tech or non-tech companies who are trying to get into the space? Well, I, I, I think um, following on from what Mario was just saying, I think the thing that I found most interesting recently was Microsoft's acquisition of Zenimax. Um, I think 7.5 billion, you know, a lot of people, a lot of speculation at the time as to what was driving that, whether it was this sort of console war with Sony wanting to have exclusive content. But to Mario's point, content being king, you know, the Bethesda, the Zenimax world has been built on, you know, over a decade now of really strong content, law, world building. And I think just like Microsoft did originally with Minecraft, it's not just about making more Skyrim games. It's about what does the Skyrim TV show look like? What does this, what does the you know just like the Mandalorian did for for Star Wars? What can um, Microsoft produce or create with that world that 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 sort of engages consumers with with that property? And I think that 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 was particularly interesting seeing that and seeing sort of a, a, you know the driver for that being this content. And, and allowing gamers to to reach this, you know, this world. Mm. Um, it, you've it's it's well, it's handy that you've mentioned uh, acquisitions because the space is definitely heating up from from actually a, a multitude of different angles. And um, it's funny that actually I think since we since we booked this this podcast, um, certainly the IPO space has has heated up massively. Um, so. D- d- uh, so many different, so many different parts to this question. Um, it, it's a very exciting time on the one hand because investment, interest, um, time spent, play, pe- amount of people playing games, time spent playing games, everything's kind of up. On the other hand, you've got uh, intense competition for user attention. Uh, you have sort of uh, sweeping platform changes which could have a dramatic impact on the industry like iOS 14 or, or Apple's changes to, to the IDFA um, on the horizon. Within that context, um, what are some of the, the trends you guys are, are seeing and expect to see in the industry? Um, and Spike, you can maybe take this first. Well, I, maybe I'll let Mario because I kind of jumped the gun on, on my last oh, answer, I guess. True. So, so naughty. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, yeah, I agree that ecosystem um, has never been more competitive, particularly on mobile. But uh, I would say on console and PC, where the large, you know, public publishers compete in, um, you know, the larger franchises like Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto, um, they're becoming bigger and, you know, competition, they're basically building a, a more defensive mode around their franchises. So you can kind of see, you know, what Activision has done with Call of Duty over the years. They introduced Call of Duty on mobile, they introduced uh, Warzone, which is a free-to-play business model on, on PC um, and console. And so I think having that multi-platform approach and having that multi-business you know, business model, whether it be free-to-play or buying a premium title, um, you know, that kind of widens the funnel for, for the audience for each of their franchises. Um, and I think that's a playbook that's going to be very successful going forward. Um, yeah, I think overall, there's just a lot of money floating around in the industry, um, as you can see with the you know Microsoft's acquisition of Bethesda. But I think there's also you know it's also going to drive a lot of non-traditional vehicles like SPACs that are becoming very popular recently. Um, so one of these you know 
gaming companies uh, skills just went public recently through a SPAC. I think there's there's probably a lot of opportunities there, I would say, in the next year or two uh, for more of these gaming companies to, to go public in a non-traditional way. Yeah, I think as well, there's a lot of impetus for these big um, businesses, these big companies to need to not reinvent, but stay up to date with the current trends. And I think another interesting one was, you know, Oracle and, and how they were sort of looking at the at TikTok and how they were sort of approaching that, you know, Oracle is a very fusty, if I may say, kind of business that uh, no one I think would accuse them of being sort of on the knife's edge of things. And, and yet here they are now, you know, uh, with one of the hottest, youngest sort of platforms, technologies out there. Um, how they got there is obviously kind of interesting, but, um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more of these kind of big behemoth sort of businesses um, wanting to get into more exciting, funner spaces. And another great example of that is Facebook and Oculus, right? Mm. Really, really, really uh, great. And, you know, again, Facebook's main business model is about as boring as it gets for most people these days. And yet here they are, you know, pushing the envelope with um, virtual reality. Mm. And let's let's jump to talking about esports. Um, there, I think there are some c- conflicting sentiments in the industry about whether esports is worth the enormous hype. Um, I'm my assumption is you're going to, to <laughs> you're going to agree that it is. Um, but what are some of the reservations that some people have uh, in the investment world about esports, and and are they justified? Well, I mean, yeah, yes. Firstly, yes and no. The esports industry is hyped. Um, I think we all know that the the way that um, society is moving, we all know the way that, that everything is becoming more digital um, and we're moving into these sort of digital worlds. So it makes sense that the sports of the future become digital. And so I think the macro the macro thesis is right, that these, indis- that these this is a growth area. Um, and therefore, because of that, the valuations are or the investment cases is a little hot. So I, I would certainly agree with you on that, but that's the cost of, of, of being at the table of a growth industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the main problem that esports faces from an investment perspective, and this is, this, you can either think of this as a feature or a bug, right? This is either the black hole that the whole esports industry circles or it's just a feature of the 21st century and the way that everything's going to work from now on. And that is that, that the owner of the intellectual property, the intell- a lot of these businesses that are out there seeking funding or running in esports do not own the underlying intellectual property of what they are building upon. And that, that, is, that is a big problem because if you want to run an esports tournament for, let's say, Fortnite tomorrow, you well, you need permission to do it in the first place. And mm. secondly, you're at the behest of the game developer. The game developer might put a new weapon in the game tomorrow or might change the map tomorrow or might decide that they want to go from 100 players on a server to 80 players on a server. And you as the tournament organizer or the league or the team or the brand that's involved or the platform that's serving that have no control control over that. And and that is a that is super that is super important. And secondly, you know the 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 IP owner may have their own 
has their own vision for what they want to do. And and some like Valve, who I think are, you know, there by the grace of Valve goes the esports industry. They're open license. They're allowing anyone to exploit it. They're allowing anyone to, to build a product around it, has created the ESLs, the blasts, the facets of today. The flip side to that is no one can own it fully because, you know, there's a lot of competition because it's a wide open playing field. And on the on the other side, you've got, you know, the Activisions of the world who are saying, we, we are going to do it our way. You may not use our game. You may not use our intellectual property. If you're a team in our league, you must play by our rules and you must even rename yourself. So th- those are the two kind of positions in the esports market. Mm. It's interesting actually to think of traditional sports and, and esports as being different in, in the sense that you don't, huh, if you're a football team, you it's not like you're at the sort of... Um, is it the, the, mercy. the mercy? Thank you. You aren't <laughs> at the mercy of someone else who sort of owns the the IP of the game, um, which is a it's a, a really critical difference, which actually I, I've never thought about. Um, so uh, moving on to to game tech, um, which is this sort of new thing that Newzu, the research firm, has, has sort of coined with their infographic, which mapped out this ecosystem of companies that sort of creates tech that fuels or enables the game industry. Um, I'm curious how you, from an investment perspective, how you guys look at the technology sector of the game uh, industry or, or game tech, as, as I'm calling it now. Um, is it as interesting? Is it critical? Is it part of how investors look at the, the game industry, actually? Or is it kind of a blind spot for them? Um, Mario, maybe you can take this first. Yeah, sure. I, I definitely think it does matter. Um I think I said before, content is is the most important. Um, but the, on the investment side, supporting the ecosystem is just as attractive as an investment vehicle. So one of the main drawbacks that prevent investors that I talk to to commit capital to the gaming space is the hit-driven nature of mm-hmm. the business. So I think investing in a game tech company, in a sense, it gives you the upside and the po- of the positive gaming trends, but also gives you less volatility because they have less reliance on specific title releases. Um, so as you can see with Unity, you know, them being a game tech company in, in the development space, um, you know, there's a lot of demand right now for, for these game tech companies. Um, you know, Unity, they IPO'd at $52. You know, it almost yeah. doubled um, right after. So there's definitely high demand. There's not many companies that are public yet um, for investors to kind of invest in. But the, the demand's there. I think it's just the beginning. Um, but it definitely does matter on the investment side. And do you find that um, investors are cognizant of game tech opportunities? Yes and no. Um, I think I think it's hard because a lot of the public companies are kind of more focused on the, the console and PC side. So, you know, the game tech side of those platforms is a little bit more mm-hmm. limited because, like, say, an Activision, they mainly use like their in-house game tech, whereas you know for mobile gaming companies, they use a host of third-party game tech companies' services. Um, so I think when you know when you see more and more mobile companies go public, um, I think that's when you see um, you know investors being more familiar with the space. It's definitely still early days, so I think investors like Spike who invest in like these private companies, they probably have more more of a sense, um, you know, of, of where this trend is going. But I would say on the public side, 
uh, it's still early and you know fairly new to them. Uh-huh. And Spike? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we're seeing a lot of different game tech businesses out there who are each solving quite specific problems. I think therefore you really need to be honest about your monetization opportunities when you're solving, you know, these small specific slices of of the problem. And what we're seeing from companies like Unity is they are, and and, and Epic as well, they are absorbed, you know, they are trying to build a really good full stack that contains everything that you need. Um, And so it's a, it's a bit of a, you know, as a game development studio, for example, and you're you're trying to pick pieces off the shelf, and you've got a chance to build it yourself, or do you, um, you know, go out and, and and buy the tech? But then, is the tech sort of, you know, does that cost work out? So it, there's a there's a lot, and I I think game studios today, you know, in, that, that that's a problem of today. I think that in in five ten years, it's just going to all be part of of the development stack and they're going to offer everything that everything the developer needs and it's already it's already going them being unity unity or unreal or yes right right so essentially a lot of consolidation in the tech space yes makes sense um and and how um i mean theoretically this applies to both of you but certainly mario because you're looking at these companies as well um how does it how does sort of game tech relationship to gaming relate to um tech's relationship to entertainment i'll sort of maybe clarify this a little i i talk about this idea a lot um mainly also because i'm desperately fangirl um, Matt Ball, but he pointed out um, that the unlike other industries, technology in the game industry has driven expansion rather than refinement. Um, so, as tech has evolved, as game tech has evolved, has evolved, the game industry has expanded because it's added new options for game engagement versus refining on existing options. So. Um, like the DVD replacing VHS um, didn't grow the entertainment industry necessarily. It just sort of made the process of of consuming entertainment more smooth. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I think, I think looking at skills is a good example. Um, So they basically captured um, or, you know, started this competitive uh, mobile gaming market in terms of like hyper casual games. Um, So they basically created a new market um, with their technology. Um, and that's definitely adding to the pie rather than, you know, taking a piece away. So, you know, I think a lot of these game tech companies also have the opportunity, um, because gaming is such a universal activity, um, especially during this time, um, there's a lot of opportunity for these companies to kind of increase awareness and kind of increase, uh, increase gameplay, if you will. Um, so for, for skills, there's a lot of people that, you know, might not necessarily be interested in playing a hyper casual game, but because they implemented this competitive nature and the ability to kind of spend real money um, and then redeem prizes, like that's a that's a creative uh, and unique aspect of, of that model. Um, so I think as long as you know these game tech companies create something new um, and have a new business model, um, they're definitely adding to the pie than taking mm-hmm. away. And Spike, a perspective on how sort of WB versus the tech for wb versus tech for wb games i guess <laughs> is there a difference i well 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 actually i think we are seeing a convergence right and uh, i'm going to go back and use the mandalorian as an example shot in uh, mm. unreal technology no was it shot in unity 
no, no. unreal yeah it's unreal um but so he here you have a you know great example mandalorian shot in unreal technology the same game engine that um you know ultimately the same engine the same stack is is going to be used for both and also is the same stack and engine that's used for automotive design or is used for architecture so i think we're seeing the whole you know these tools are not just important for games but as as society moves starts to digitize itself you know it they become ubiquitous tools just for you know humanity in some respect it's it's um, game tech eating tech essentially or entertainment tech perhaps yeah and you know one of the reasons i think for that is i think that the games industry is very lucky we attract very uh, intelligent people who are very good at what they do and we put them in a fun and engaging and challenging place so it's you've got the best of both worlds you're attracting the best talent and you're engaging the best talent because you're making games which you know it's great is really really fun and i think that's one of the reasons why the games industry continues to eat the rest of the world because we're we're solving problems we just happen to be doing it through the the fun lens of video games but the problems we're solving can actually uh, benefit all industries mhm um i i'd like to this is a sort of same angle on a different angle on the same question um but i've i've listened to a few interesting podcasts and and articles recently talking about the defensibility um of game companies so um ha- are there game companies who are as defensible as the fan companies um and if not what do they sort of what do they need to do to get there uh mario maybe this, this is one for you first yeah sure um, and what part does does tech have to play in that because obviously tech is a very big part of of how kind of the fang companies um have enjoy the position that they do right yeah i, I think just starting with the fang companies um i think the defensibility seen in them is really based on two things so one is on superior technology that you talked about and then two is you know the superior technology leads to unmatched scale so you know in terms of the video game space um you know if there's a game tech company that eventually commands like a number one market share within its category uh similar to like unity for example in terms of the game engine space um i think that certainly creates a sense of defensibility um but i think right now you know there's a lot of segments within game tech um like operations growth market analytics um they're kind of all in the growth stages of the economic cycle uh, so I think competition is still pretty fierce right now. Uh, there's not a, a clear-cut winner um, in the sense that you know you can see that defensibility seeing the thing stocks today. Uh, but I think over time, there's typically one or two companies that emerge in each category um, that will have a defensibility. So I think in in, in you know general internet sense, you see Facebook um, and Google kind of dominate the ad advertising market. You see, you know, Priceline, Expedia dominate the online travel market, and you see like Uber and Lyft dominate rideshare. So I think, you know, having a duopoly um, that kind of creates uh, that defensibility. Um, so I think over time, you know, that the market here in game tech will shape into the one or two top companies of each category. Yeah, I think I, I think there's a, a, if I may um, uh, offer another way that game. Studios or game companies can be defensible, and and that's progress. 
which is a little less tangible if you're not from the, the world of video games. But a, a great example is, you know, World of Warcraft. You know, a lot of people have been playing that game for 15 years and have 15 years worth of not just memories um, and friendships and uh, bonds, but also actual in-game progress, the items their character has, the way their character looks, the um, accolades and, and trophies that the character has, all builds deep, you know, more than just habitual um, uh, um, a bond with a game, but a really deep mm-hmm. kind of... A relationship with a game that that prevents you from switching or, or or makes you think twice about switching to an to another game mm-hmm. it's, Does it's that make also sense? Perhaps, yeah um it, it kind of also connects to um social media and gaming uh converging or social experiences is increasingly you know happening on within game uh platforms or, or worlds yes Yes. Um, so th- th- let's sort of look at the investment landscape. Um, the big news recently, and we've talked about it, was Unity's IPO. There are a lot of different game companies um, going the IPO route recently. What are your uh, main takeaways from their S1? Um, and what other gaming powerhouses do you think um, will uh, IPO in the next year or, or potentially consolidate? Um, Mario, maybe you take this first. Yeah, so in terms of their S1, we also uh, just recently published our initiation of Unity. So we came out with an equal weight rating and a $97 price target. So I think for us, the main takeaway is that, you know, gaming is still its core and it's still growing double digits. Um, and then like I mentioned earlier, these rising games, you know, as you know, Among Us and Fall Guys, uh, they're more simpler games, more casual uh, and more social they're all developed using Unity. And so I think these are two very good, you know, examples of, you know, more indie developers being able to go mainstream during this time and even potentially after. Um, So I think that bodes really well for Unity in terms of um, their gaming penetration. Um, You know, I think in the S1 and talking to a lot of investors, Unity is making a very big push into these new verticals outside of gaming, like architecture, automobile, film, retail, um, the, entering these new verticals can more than double its addressable market over time. So I think that's a big reason why the stock kind of went from $52 to where it is today, around 90 um, And then I think from the S1, a lot of people were actually initially surprised by how large Unity's advertising business is. Um, you know, mm-hmm. every, like most gamers that we talk to, they know Unity for, for its game engine. But when you look at its financials, uh, you know, the game engine roughly comprises only 35% of the company's revenues. Um, it's advertising um, that we estimate is actually half of their business. Um, and so that's why, you know, the iOS and IDFA is such a such a big topic for, for a company like Unity because of that revenue composition. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. I think there's, you know, it definitely has a great foundation within gaming. Um, and then the, the potential to enter these new verticals is, is definitely uh, a big call option for, for the company. And then... Given, given they, um, they just launched, I don't know if you guys saw the game growth fund, um, do you think we're going to see Unity become a game publisher? Yeah, that's been, that's been a popular question. Um, I think they, they like to 
compare themselves away from Epic Games, right? So they they like to be agnostic in terms of um, who they're servicing. So I think they're trying to say, you know, with Unreal being owned by Epic Games and Epic Games makes Fortnite, they kind of have a conflict of interest in the sense that, you know, the, the game engine is kind of tailored in a way to, to Fortnite. Um, and so, you know, these third-party developers, you know, they might not benefit, uh, you know, to the same extent that Fortnite would benefit from, you know, each additional feature that Unreal adds to. While for, for Unity, um, I don't think they have any plans really to, to make their own content. Um, and I think that's that's an advantage that they're pitching um, to to developers and investors that you know over time like their tools are are more universal. Um, so theoretically, they they should be able to develop um, you know like the industry standard across all types of genres, all types of games, rather than just you know one specific um, genre or one one specific um, platform. And um, Spike, this is um, for you. You've mentioned the metaverse a few times already today. Um, so, so here comes a, a metaverse question. Where do you think we are um, in the, let's call it maybe the journey towards a metaverse? Um, and is there is there a sense of consensus in the gaming VC community around the potential um, of the metaverse and, and the fact that that's where sort of the industry is heading? Or, or, or are there sort of divided opinions? No, I think people generally get it. Uh, and the word metaverse has, has joined the lexicon really in the last 12 months, I think, uh, as, you know, people start to see that. we A few areas, you know, I'll give you a great example. You know, shopping is now done online. Um, dating is now uh, done. <laughs> if anyone like me is unfortunate enough to have to be dating during COVID, it's, uh, you know, online, yeah. you know, is, is, is where to do it. Um, or... Um, you know, avatarization uh, is again something that I see see a lot. You know, being a gamer, I'm used to it having an avatar represent me that isn't me, right? But but takes the best things mm-hmm. of my personality. Um, if anyone looked at my Instagram account and actually met me in real life, they'd be very very disappointed, as I'm sure with everybody. Um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, or you know these face filters that um, uh, young women are using these days uh, on Snapchat or or, or or whatever. You know, to create to augment the way that they look not physically in in the real space but in the digital space and so i think you know again talking about you know real life learning from games we are we are seeing um you know people using avatars to represent who who they are um more and more and just incrementally it just starts to move us further and further and further towards this sort of metaverse that someone like Neil Stephenson or William Gibson um, has, uh, you know, prophesied. And, mm. and yeah, and that, that's what, you know, I, I'll talk about Epic again, just very briefly. And Tim, you know, actually, I, I, I got to meet Tim a few years back at a BAFTA event in Los Angeles, and um, he had only read Snow Crash a year ago, he had said, right, when someone had mentioned to him, but his, his vision was totally totally there and he's one of the most intelligent incredible people you ever meet but you know for the way Fortnite's moving away from being just a pure battle royale game to being a social space a community space where you can watch movies or watch a concert or dip in and play Mm -hmm. some games everyone's just doing it and it's just incrementally it's moving us 
forward to this utopia or dystopia, however you want to to think of it, where we all just sort of are brains in vats being stimulated by uh, electrodes. <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> I, I could end up here on that really um, positive note, but I'll, I'll maybe just ask you each um, uh, a final question about the future. No biggie. Um, what taking a financial perspective here what trends do you think we're going to see over the next year is there going to be more sort of institutional uh sort of traditional financial investments in gaming like for example the the private equity firms um buying up sort of game monetization user acquisition companies or investing in them uh or goldman sachs uh investing in voodoo are we going to see more of those? Are we going to see consolidation within the industry? Are we going to see sort of acquisitions from outside to in the game industry? I'm giving you lots of options here. Feel free to ignore them all. Um, and maybe Mario, you take it first and then Spike. Yeah, I, th- I think it's hard to tell whether, you know, you know, financial companies like like Barclays will continue to invest in these in companies. I think, you know, the trend is probably here to stay if I were to guess. Um, but I think I think the bigger trend is, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of these investors that I talked about that are, you know, outside of the gaming space. So the ones that are like software investors, um, you know, they're they're kind of creeping back into video games or creeping in for the first time. And I think I think the the funnel of investors have, have widened, right? Um, so I think that's going to be a, a trend that continues. Um, you know, yet I think just like a couple of days ago, uh, Take Two just announced that Rufian Games uh, they're acquiring them. So there's a lot of M and A. Um, action right now in the space. I think typically when you look across, you know, certain industries, M&A is usually prominent more when it's, you know, when the industry is distressed. Um, and I think right now, you know, it's kind of the opposite, right? Like video games is like, it's growing and it's, um, it's growing even faster because of COVID. Um, so I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of opportunities, um, but a lot of, a lot of the valuation, I would say of, of, of gaming is pretty elevated right now. So it doesn't really, um, it's not a very favorable um, environment for okay. M&A. Um, but I do think with, you know, upcoming events like IDFA, for example, that's going to, that's going to kind of dis- disrupt the advertising, uh, you know, ecosystem within mobile um, that, that could, you know, spur some uh, M&A activity. So I think, you know, any of these events um, will be a catalyst for, for additional M&A. Mm-hmm. And Spike, I think, you know, that we're going to see, I think we're going to see a lot more uh, investment, both from existing corporations, institutional investors. I think I think this wake up call, it's taken COVID for, I think, people to really get it. Uh, and I've been surprised at how slowly um, the, 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 the non-endemic games industry has taken to to get into the games and game tech. And I think that we're going to see we're going to see a lot more deal flow. We're going to see a lot more deals being done. We're going to see some great deals being done, but we're also going to see some bad deals being done. We're going to see some bad stuff happening, just because there's still this education curve, which I think a lot of people are further behind the curve than um, than where they should be. Mm-hmm. Well, um, both of you, thank you very much uh, for being on the show today uh, and for bearing with all the technical difficulties that hopefully our listeners were completely unaware of. Um, <clears throat> it's been a, a very, uh, very, very interesting discussion and, and actually really exciting 
um, to get such a um, financial perspective on what's a really what's become a really exciting industry. So thank you very much for being on today. And thank you to everyone, as always, for listening. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us.